Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hey, Max. What's going on this week? This week on the show, I talked to Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan is a staff writer at ESPN, but he is also uh, the author of a new book that's called Net Gains, which is about the analytics revolution, but I think revolution is in quotes, in, uh, in soccer. It's about how analytics are coming to soccer. And uh, he writes about soccer for ESPN. We actually talked on Saturday afternoon, shortly after the uh, men's national team lost in the World Cup. So we talked about uh, how that felt for Ryan and then also about um, how analytics are impacting soccer. The answer is uh, the randomness and the art of soccer make it tough for analytics to um, control them in the same way they have come to in basketball and baseball and other sports. But we also talked a lot about Ryan's career over the last decade or so, which I feel like is a uh, interesting like little time capsule of like uh, 2010s online journalism. He was an editor at Outside Magazine and Pacific Standard. Then he went to Grantland. Then he was at The Ringer. Then he left The Ringer and started his own thing in a Substack. And now he's writing. So left editing is writing and working at ESPN. So he's touched all of these different like plot points on the graph of 2010's journalism. And we talked about that too. Fun fact, I'm watching the World Cup on silent while we do this introduction. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers, Aaron. <laughs> that is not surprising. Not surprising. Uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make this show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Ryan O'Hanlon. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Max. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be on it. As a, I technically worked for long form sports feet. Sports feet, man. R.I.P. Sports feet. Sports feet for the uh, non-long form super fan was a uh, spinoff website that we did. When was that? 2012? Yeah, I think 2011, 2012. Wow. So we're talking um, over a decade ago. <laughs> but yeah, you and I you and I worked on this uh, sports article recommendation service. That was so fun and not very many people came to it. The people listening, you know, soccer guy, sports feet. There's some connection there. Yeah, totally. Well, I feel like you have just described yourself as a soccer guy. And um, we are talking, it is 4.45 Eastern time on Saturday, December 3rd. The 
U.S. men's national team just ended its run at the World Cup, which seems like a great time to talk to a soccer guy. <laughs> so my question for you, Ryan, is uh, how are you feeling? And the context here for our listeners, I think, is that the World Cup comes every four years, and it is by far the biggest event in a soccer guy's life. Is that accurate? Yes, I would say so. And uh, the U.S. men's national team made a pretty thrilling run, which you have been covering. So I guess my, my question is, uh, yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, I think it's like as someone who grew up playing soccer in the U.S. has followed the team. I'm not supposed to be biased because I'm a journalist, right? But I think with national soccer, everyone sort of likes to see their national team do well because then you got to keep covering the team, right? Well, there there is this tone around the men's national team, which I'm interested about from a journalistic perspective, which is... You know, I watched some like interviews with the players after the game and they were kind of like, our whole goal is just to inspire the next generation of players and feel like we didn't do that today, but we did do that over our run in the tournament. Like there's this totally different tone with soccer than there is with any other sport in America where it's like a collective goal to bring the sport up. Yeah. You know, do you feel part of that machine? I think maybe more so in the past when I was younger. Now that I'm like, I guess, a more established person that I have a you know job at a pretty <laughs> high profile publication place called ESPN. Um, so for the U.S., right, like the best soccer team in the U.S. is the U.S. men's national team, because all of our best players now play in Europe or for the most part, a handful play in MLS. So when you get all the players together, you know, that's the peak of American soccer. But like for like all the other countries, like, you know, in England, you have you know, you're what, you're a Man City fan, right? And you're rooting for Manchester City. And then you go watch England, but like Manchester City is like, that's the that's the peak. That's the like, you know, uh, Golden State Warriors, right, of soccer. And then you go into the World Cup and I think you probably have a little more understanding, right? That it's like, the teams aren't quite as good because they don't get to play together as often. And, the, you know, you're picking players based on the geography of where they were born. And you just know that it's like the World Cup and it's every four years and the U.S. just played four games. And I just wrote an entire book about how soccer is insanely random. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so there's such a weird tension with the U.S. where it is like it's probably more true than any other country, right? Where like the most soccer people will watch and sort of the highest profile soccer they will watch will be the U.S. men's national team. While that's not true for the England men's national team, there's still a ton of pressure on those players with Brazil. Same thing. But they're experiencing an insane amount of pressure every day playing for their club teams. So I think there's just this very kind of strange like disconnect between like the World Cup is this event every four years. You only, you know, take 10 shots a game. A lot of shit can happen. Right. And is not really a barometer of how soccer is doing in the country. Right. Like it's, you know, it's so much of it is based on how your players just play in a week. And are you saying that because you've now seen that cycle happen and have just written a book that is basically like a monument to randomness? Have you now seen the cycle play out enough times that it's harder for you to get emotionally caught up in like what these four games will mean for the future of American soccer? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's where I'm at. Like, so I look at it this way. The U.S. probably has like you could maybe argue they have like the 12th most talented team in the world, but it's probably somewhere between 12 and like 18. Right. Just pure talent. And talent is like 
as much as people like to criticize the U.S. coach and kind of blame all the losses on him, talent is what wins games. That's true in every sport. And so I'd look at the U.S. and I just see, okay, they have all this talent that they've never had before. That talent then goes out on the field and like whatever the talent produces on the field, it says nothing about whether that talent exists or not, if that makes any sense. Like they outplayed Wales for most of the game and they're a more talented team than Wales. They played England roughly 50-50. So that to me, that's a success because it's England. They outplayed Iran in a game they needed to win. And then today they, I think it was pr- it was a closer game than the scoreline suggested. And it's the youngest team at the World Cup. To me, I look at that and it's like, I don't care about the results. Like the performances were good and all of the fundamentals of this team suggest that the team's going to be even better in the future. So I think I'm able to like step back and think about it this way in a way that, you know, a fan isn't because it's like, oh shit, I don't get to watch them play for another four years now. I feel like um, I have a lot more questions about your experience with an acceptance of randomness but I don't want to spend the entire time we have together talking about existential things. So I'm going to, I'm going to punt on it for a second. Okay. Uh, but I think I was asking something slightly different, which is basically there is a different tone I find in the sort of soccer community from the players to the analysts to the journalists that is putting it in this context of like trying to grow the pie. Mm-hmm trying to make it bigger in America. Like it feels a little bit more similar to me to like how tech reporting was in like the 2000s, you know? Yeah. Where it was like the the reporters themselves sort of had a bet on that being a big story and growing. Do you feel like you have a vested interest in soccer getting bigger or, or do you not feel a part of that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think overall, like if you're covering American soccer, you benefit from more people caring about American soccer, like in terms of just like the pure economics of the situation, right? And if the national team does better at the World Cup, a larger portion of the people that would just watch the World Cup and then kind of fade away would probably stick on, I think is a fair thing to suggest. And in some ways it does create a situation where it's like you're incentivized to either be like a booster or like a non-critical analyst of the team Or you can go the other way and be like, this sucks. Like, this is corrupt. (laughs) Like, the coach, like, his brother was an executive at U.S. soccer. Like, what are we doing here? But I think more, it also kind of diverges from other sports where it's like, you know, so the U.S. missed the last World Cup, um, which I guess speaks to some of this, right? And in some ways, it was more, almost more fun to cover for me because it's like, then you just cover it like a sport rather than this sort of, like, national effort or whatever but it's like the u.s misses the, the last world cup and then you know i'm digging into like income inequality racial participation in the sport like you know number of soccer fields across the country like catchment areas for talent which like you just that you're not doing that if you're writing about basketball right it's just like we got the nba like what it's, this other stuff doesn't matter so there there are all these kinds of factors and i i think like i try to analyze the u.s in the same way that i would analyze everyone else and try to take a step away and look at the fundamentals. Um, but like, it, it is true that like, it would be better for me guy that writes about soccer for a living. If like, you know, for example, right. If more people care about soccer, more of my ESPN articles will be like on the homepage. Right. And then more people will see my name and more people will read them. Right. So like, that's true. But like, 
it's true. So what do you, I don't know, what do you, what do you do with that information? I think that's what I'm asking about, which is like, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that's true and also not particularly present for you, that that aspect of it you feel apart from. Yeah. And I, again, it goes back to like, I'm, <laughs> I'm working for ESPN, right? So maybe that insulates me from it a little bit. Like I, I, people are going to read what I'm writing um, more so than like, I don't know, someone that's just writing about the US all the time for a smaller publication or something. So I guess I feel insulated from it a little bit. I don't know. It's interesting, right? Because non-soccer media covering the US comes into it with a similar sentiment, right? Like it's talking about the US if it's our team and like, why are we not better at soccer, right? Like I was saying, you don't talk about the NFL in that way on national media, but you do in soccer. So it even kind of goes beyond the soccer media some ways. So it's I think that probably adds to it a little bit too, don't you think? Yeah, I do. I think that's that's a part of it. And it also has this dynamic too, which I think, you know, is the other question I had for you just on this day where the men's national team bows out of the tournament, which is not only is this huge groundswell of interest in it, uh, and, you know, people like me who haven't been paying attention who are now suddenly hanging on every minute of these games, but there's all these people writing about it who haven't been around for the last four years. And I, I wondered what that was like for you too, as someone who's covering the sport week in and week out to suddenly have all these like, uh, kind of like uh, <laughs> journalistic carpetbaggers show up on your door. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess this would be my third World Cup as like a professional journalist. Um, 2010 was like right after I graduated college. Um, so I was doing like blogging for Brian Phillips. He had a blog called The Run of Play that I was like helping blog for during 2010 World Cup. But so the last three I've I've covered, one for Grantland, one for the Ringer, and then now for ESPN. So it's not it's not necessarily anything new. Um I think I get more frustrated by like the dumb, like, what if our best athlete what if JJ Watt was like our center forward? Like we would win the World Cup every year, wouldn't we? Um I've yet to get to the stage of my life where I don't get pissed off by that. <laughs> It seems like you've arrived at a pretty zen place on some other things, but the uh, why can't we have athletes from other sports playing soccer still drives you crazy? I think it, in some ways it does connect to what we're talking about, right? Because like the rest of the world has been doing soccer for like a hundred years. Like they're good at this. They understand like what makes a good soccer player. They know that like this kid's touch when he's eight, if we get him into our academy, we can make like 5 million uh, in a transfer fee from this kid. We don't, that's not the competition the U.S. is facing in the other major sports. The U.S. is the first mover in all the other sports. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. I want to go back to the 2010 blogging a little bit for Run of Play and Brian Phillips and trying to think about what you wanted to be doing as a journalist then. Uh, what what were your goals and ambitions when you were starting out as a writer after school? So, yeah, I went, I went to Holy Cross, did creative writing in addition to playing soccer. Those were sort of the two things I spent my time on there um, and came out of school, didn't have anything lined up other than this like part time gig where I was going into the city, like I forget what the company was called, but they were just building up a database of like articles about everything and there was just like a spreadsheet with like millions of topics and you just would pick a topic write a 500 word article about it <laughs> check it off <laughs> move on to the next thing um and they like well, offered wait, wait, me what, like what, what, what kind of topics are we talking about like, like cherry tomatoes yeah like like the peloponnesian war i think was one and then like another one was about like soy sauce you know like everything um this, was this just like a like a seo farm kind of situation yeah but i think it was like 2010 right so it's like that was less of like a known thing at the time um at least for someone like me uh-huh and they like offered me a like part-time job at a school and i was like living with my parents and was just kind of like i guess you know i gotta, gotta take this i think in my head i was like oh yeah i'll, I'll uh get some reps too you know uh, <laughs> so i'm doing that like a couple times a week taking the train into the city and the world cup's happening during this and when i get the chance i'm i wrote a couple posts for brian and his site was like uber literary i guess was the sort of the aim of it like really just going like gonzo with like the most extreme, like kind of purposely over the top writing. And I love, I loved that because I, I wrote for the school newspaper and then was a creative writing guy, but like didn't, didn't, ex hadn't experienced that kind of soccer writing before. Like you didn't care about the results at all. Like the results were like barely relevant to what you're writing about. It was like, how does this player's first touch make me feel? And how do I put that into words? And that was really fun to like stretch that muscle. So the U.S. played Algeria and, you know, famously Landon Donovan scored an injury time, third group stage game. And I'd snuck out of this job and was watching the game at some deli in Murray Hill. It was on like a little one of those TVs that had like a VCR built into it. So the TV was like eight inches. And I watched the game there. And then I just like I went back to my desk and then I went home and didn't go back to the job. I was just like. I got to like write about this stuff. Like I'm not making any money doing the writing, but like this is better. So I did kind of some random blogging there, but had no like, this wasn't strategic. I don't think by any means it was like, this just feels right. Like seven people will retweet this thing that I wrote. And that seems more valuable than writing about Sriracha and the origins of Sriracha sauce. So I started doing that. And then I got connected with, um, this site, I think it still exists actually called the good men project. And it was founded by, um, Benoit Denizet Lewis, who's I think still is a writer for the 
Times Magazine. And the way he sold it to me was, this is going to sound horrible, like in the year 2022, but this was 2010. And he was like, we want to do like Jezebel, but for men, like that's the aim of the site. Um, This was back when GQ and Esquire were still like putting Brooklyn Decker and Kate Upton on the cover. And men's mags were, men's magazines were still very much like lad, lad mags, right? So he kind of sold it to me as like, we can do sort of smarter writing for men um, and like about men. I, I'm not making this, this venture sound great, but they gave me like a part-time job writing blog posts for them based on some of the stuff that I wrote for Brian, I think. And it was mainly just like random news blogging, nothing like out of the ordinary that was happening in 2010, just <laughs> You know, I wrote about LeBron going to the heat, stuff like that. Yeah, whatever whatever the story of the day is, the Good Men Project is going to have their take. Yeah, and I wasn't like bringing like gender studies to LeBron going to the Miami Heat. It was just like I was just giving my take on the situation. So that eventually led to like me being named the full-time managing editor of the site when everyone else quit. <laughs> and they upped my pay from like 500 bucks a month to an actual salary that I was capable of living off in Brooklyn. Um, So I followed that um, and then was like editing eight articles a day about stuff that I didn't really understand or know and just putting them up the next day and then doing it again and then doing it again. It was just me. How long were those days? How many hours are we talking about those days? Probably like it wasn't that the hours were necessarily that much longer, you know, like 7.30 to like 6 or something. But it's like, those are uh, saturated hours just of doing stuff the whole time. Yeah. You were just grinding. Yeah. So that kind of just like set me, just this random bounces essentially just threw me to that spot basically to start my career. And when you were putting in those like 7.30 to 6 churn days, were you feeling like psyched? Did you feel like this was the thing that you had wanted to do? Did you feel like you had like um had like uh made it? No. I did, I didn't feel that way. I mean, so I think one of the things I was able to do that I think I was like good at without realizing I was good at it was like I was able to carve out a little bit of budget for stuff to get writers that I liked to write like one thing for the site about stuff that like had nothing to do with what the mission of the site was like Peter Schrager, who's the like NFL reporter for Fox wrote a couple articles for the good men project. I got Bethlehem Scholes, Nathaniel Friedman, um, sort of the most famous writer on the internet at the time I got him to do stuff. And then a handful of other people. And then I was able to like, I figured out the, like the journalism hack of, do an article interviewing a journalist you think is cool, publish the Q&A, you've built up a relationship with the journalist, and then the journalist also will retweet the interview, and then other people will see it, and it'll do well, and your bosses will be like, this is good. Um, <laughs> and so I had like I had like a 10% bit of like, I like this part of what I'm doing. And then the rest of it was just like this. I don't really super believe in the content or the mission behind the site. So I eventually just... Uh, just quit in like early 2012 and then tried to freelance while I was living in Brooklyn. How'd that go? 
not as bad as you would think because 2012, right? It was like Buzzfeed became like a site that was publishing decent journalism in 2012, right? That was like right when they launched. Um, so I did some stuff for their sports site, some stuff for their tech site. I remember um, I did a piece for John Herman where I lived an entire day based on, do you remember the website Yahoo Answers? Yeah, sure. I lived an entire day based off of Yahoo Answers questions um, <laughs> and wrote an article about it. So there was that. And then there was also, remember, uh, the iPad only newspaper. Was it just called The Daily? The Daily. I covered Euro 2012 for them, um, which is an incredible <laughs> sentence. And they paid super well. Yeah, yeah, very well-funded operation. So I was able to do that. I convinced New York Mag to let me interview the goalie for the Red Bulls who looked like Larry Bird. Like that was the entire premise of the article. So I had a lot of stuff like that. And then I was also doing a lot of like unpaid stuff for the site, The Classical, which was sort of like, wouldn't call it a Grantland competitor, but it was like similar vibes to Grantland. Um, and I got good editing there, like from David Roth. He was my editor. And I felt like I got really good feedback there that I necessarily wasn't getting from the other place. So I thought I had like a decent balance between like making a little bit of money. And then I was doing this other writing where I was stretching pretty far, like writing in a way that I wouldn't write now. But I think it like it fulfilled me. And I also felt like the notes I was getting made me a lot better. Um, but I don't think that was like a sustainable balance um, to keep going with. What made it unsustainable? Uh, I think mainly the amount of writing I was doing that I wasn't getting paid for, <laughs> you know? Um, and then like piecing together all that other stuff. I think the daily stuff, once Euro 2012 is over, I don't think they're as interested in me writing about soccer for them all the time. Yeah. There's a really nostalgic aspect of remembering that 2012 internet because... Um... I was really living in that 2012 internet. I remember all the stuff you're talking about mm -hmm. so well. But one thing I can't quite remember is like, at that point, what did you feel like were the available paths to you? Because you'd had some editing experience, you'd had some writing experience, you'd written all kinds of different stuff for all kinds of different sites. Like, what did it feel like the lanes that you could go down were and and what did what did you want to be doing? Like, if we had asked 2012 Ryan, where do you want to be in 2022? What do you think your answer would have been? So I honestly, I think my answer, I would have wanted to be an editor for Grantland, which actually eventually happened. Because <laughs> um, like that was... Yeah, that happened like the, the next year, right? Yeah. So I, I again, I, I feel like I didn't like, it wasn't like I sat there and I was like, how do I plot my way to this website? It was just like, this is an awesome site. And like, they're doing really cool work that I would like to be involved in, right? And so I think at that point when I was doing all the freelancing, in my mind, I had established this idea, right? Like being an editor is the way to do it, right? Because you kind of, it becomes more of like a normal job, but you can also still do writing when you find time. And to me, that felt like it was going to fit my, my temperament and kind of what I was good at. Um, so I think at that time, I was kind of like, I think editing and then doing some writing still is the path forward to me. And part of that is just about risk tolerance and knowing that like editing could be a path to a steady paycheck and like a steady gig 
that still allows for some writing rather than going all in on like, I'm just going to hustle all the time and hope that Rupert Murdoch is going to fund some other iPad newspaper that's going to pay me to write about the Euros. Yeah. And to be honest, I think probably at the time I had some like hesitance about the idea of like being front and center all the time as you would be as a writer. Like the idea of being a more behind the scenes person kind of throughout most of my life has appealed to me, I think. I want to ask you about that too, because a couple of years down the line from where we are, you start this Substack and really do try and like go it alone. But we can put a pin in that too. So I'm just just for the record here, we've got two pins that we're coming back to. One is going it alone on Substack, and the other is existential randomness. You're gonna nail the landing. I, I believe in you. We're gonna get there, man. We're gonna get there. But but uh, Grantland was the dream, and you actually got there. Yeah, that was cool. So I got out of freelancing in Brooklyn, got offered a job at Outside Magazine by Nick Jackson, um, who kind of was hired to make Outside's website a serious place for journalism, basically, in a, beyond just like republishing Outside's magazine stories, which is pretty much why it existed. So he hired me, again, gave me a nice, a decent budget, and it was a good balance of like, I got to assign some pretty cool stories um, with some good writers. And I also got to write like once a week or so. And I convinced them to send me to uh, San Pedro Sula in Honduras to cover the US men's qualifier there. Because at the time it was the most deadly city in the world, um, murders per capita. So the fact that that could be like a hook <laughs> made it an outside story, basically. So I went there worked there for a year. Then Nick went to Pacific Standard, the now defunct Pacific Standard in Santa Barbara, which is sort of, um, was like a social science forward magazine, I guess is the way I would describe it. Like everything was kind of grounded in some kind of research, but did a lot of really cool stuff. Won a bunch of national magazine awards. We had, a, despite having a really small staff. So I followed him there, did the same thing, but got to be more, got to be way more involved in the print magazine than I was at Outside, where Outside it was like, I did one or two things and I, otherwise I was treated as just like a freelancer that didn't have any connection to outside in terms of pitching stuff. There's another time capsule aspect of even those jobs. Like you moved to Santa Fe to work for outside. You moved to Santa Barbara to work for Pacific Standard. I remember those being like, you know, big, those felt like big moves. Like yeah. you didn't know people in either of those places. Santa Barbara, the average age is like a thousand. Yeah. And like now... You probably wouldn't move, right? Like those jobs wouldn't demand yep. being there. Yeah. It's a time capsule. And it's also just like, that's not how the journalism career path works. You're supposed to move eastward, right? You're supposed to move to Brooklyn. You're not supposed to like, <laughs> right, move to right. Santa Fe and then Santa Barbara if you're trying to forward your journalism career. Well, but part of the reason that you were moving was because those jobs were fewer and further between, right? Like... It didn't feel like there were tons and tons of staff editing jobs sitting around. Or maybe I have that wrong. No, I think you're right. I think it was like, it was at once like a brief heyday for like uh, magazines caring about their websites and being like, we can like treat the people that work as, for the website as like real writers and real editors and like give them salaries that are requisite with that. But it's also at a time of like, I guess the beginning of contraction of magazines. So there wasn't, wasn't a ton of jobs. Um, so yeah, like outside of outside, 
I don't know how many other opportunities like that there would have been um, in New York for sure. Like those would have been just so very hard to get into, I think, um, kind of from where I was sitting. So yeah, that, that, that all took me to Santa Barbara and I started doing some freelancing for Chris Ryan at Grantland doing, doing some soccer stuff and we got along really well. And again, this looking back on it, it seems like I planned all of this, but I promise you it was not a plan. (laughs) I did a good job and we got along really well. And I had to like write randomly, you know, at night to be able to file pieces to him if I didn't want to do a bad job at Pacific Standard. And, you know, as an editor, I think I just was very cognizant of like doing all the things before the editor gets it so they don't have to do it once they get my piece, you know, Um, and like filing on time in regards to when I told them I could file. And so then in like September after the 2014 World Cup, Chris calls me and is like, listen, like, you're like the easiest writer to work with because your pieces are super clean and they're always in on time. And like you name all your files and you have links and sources to everything and you're very communicative. He's like, you seem like you like would be a good editor and like we need a sports editor. Do you want to like, are you interested? Then I was like, yeah, Um, I definitely wasn't just trying to freelance you to get you to offer me a job, but it seems like it worked out. Um, So then that whole kind of interviewing process started and kind of stressful too because it's a pretty it was a pretty intense process because it's they had an intense interviewing process but also disney just it's more loops to go through than a normal job and i was like doing all this stuff at night while i was working like a pretty intense magazine job at the same time what made the interview process intense um i guess it was one like i don't know it's intense to be because the only people I knew in Santa Barbara were people I worked with, right? As you said, uh, I was pretty much the one 25-year-old living in Santa Barbara, the one 25-year-old that's ever lived in Santa Barbara, potentially. Um, so I have this like big thing kind of happening in the background, and I can't talk to anyone about it. Um, and that, that, to me, creates a ton of stress. I mean, I could talk to like people on the phone, but like going out to dinner with Nick, you know, who were still good friends, but I couldn't tell him any of this. And it's just, that's just very, I don't know, there's something that's inherently stressful about that. And then, you know, I had to go down to LA a couple times to do interviews. Um, And then, you know, meeting Bill for the first time, how could I not be a little bit freaked out by that? I have have a funny story behind that as well. Uh, Yeah. Well, tell me it. We're talking about Bill Simmons who uh, ran Grantland and now runs The Ringer. Yeah. So I drive down, I have to take off work to do this, drive down. And so this is the day that the Ray Rice um, video goes live. Um, Ray Rice, who was essentially suspended forever from for abusing his wife. Um, and there's video footage. This is um, 2014. So I'm driving down to LA that day when that breaks. And I go do the interview. It's great. And Bill's like, let me walk you out of the building. You know, I have to go do a podcast. And we're kind of talking and he's, we're talking about the Ray Rice stuff. And then Bill, you know, walks out of the elevator with me, walks to go do a podcast. I go to my car and he goes and does the podcast that essentially uh, <laughs> leads to the demise of Grantland eventually. <laughs> so. so that's 2014. Grantland ends when? Essentially like a year later. Uh, October 31st, I think, 2015. And what was that 
experience like for you? I mean, it was pretty um, dramatic is my recollection from the outside, but what was it like for you on the inside when, when Grandland ended? Especially because it had been like the dream thing yeah. that you wanted to be doing. Yeah, so well, one, my hiring process got delayed by like three weeks because Bill was suspended by ESPN. <laughs> so that was that was my first like little, uh, like I just couldn't take the job for like a while. And then, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, oh man, is this going to like, if they're suspending him, like, are they going to like take away this headcount? Like, you know, I'm looking at it through my prism only, right? It adds even more stress. Right. Then, you know, Bill comes back and they hire me. And first couple of months are good. It was a pretty stressful job because we kind of, we kind of worked it in as if we were like a daily magazine, basically. Like we, we did blogs, but we would like publish every article in the morning and then nothing would like, unless it was something absolutely massive, we wouldn't cover it that day, which some people probably laugh at. But in some ways, I wonder if that's like, wouldn't still be a strategy that could work <laughs> in the future. But so, you know, you're grinding pretty, you're like working a lot of mornings and a lot of nights in that. And then during the day, it's like, you kind of still have to be online. So it was, it was a grind for sure, but it was, it was good and awesome to like work with people that I was just incredibly talented people but then bill um you know we all found out through like the new york times report that bill um had had his contract terminated with espn which i think was like i feel like it was in a in march 2014 so not that far into like my tenure there and then the, the period after that is very stressful because you have no idea what's going on i'm like sort of hearing what's going on through like my bosses at Grantland, but it's like unclear how much they know because like Bill was the go between between ESPN and us the whole time, right? So like that's gone. Who now is saying anything? And then um, Sean, Fennessy, Chris Ryan, Mallory Rubin, and Juliet Littman all left in like end of the summer, 2015. And like those were like my people there. Like those are the people I was working with every day. Um, Mallory and Chris in particular. And Chris is like the guy that brought me there. So that that part was really stressful because then it's like, I have no idea what's going on. No one seems to have any clue what's going on, but we still have to like make the website. And like, yeah, if you're making the website, it's hard to be like, yeah, whatever. We can just like blow this off and just publish this like half finished piece. It's like you, you just can't do that either. So just like a crazy amount of uncertainty. And then we just found out um, day of that the site was getting shut down. Which was, which is you know, not ideal. But you get a nice, a really nice severance package at ESPN. I will say that. So the next day, this website that you'd wanted to work at for a long time, that had been like the platonic ideal of a job, that almost immediately was in chaos, or at least like it was uncertain about what was going to happen to it. It ends. That next day, you got your nice severance package from ESPN, like. What's the next move? I mean, it just, it, it's so interesting to hear you walk through this career because it feels to me like you just like touched all these different kind of like eras and phases of journalism, like in the 2010s, basically. And, and I wonder what at that point felt like a possible next move. Yeah, I think touched is the right word, right? It's almost like I'm like running to one thing, tapping it, okay, accomplish this, running to another thing, tapping it, rather than like spending any time anywhere, <laughs> basically. So I I knew that the ringer 
or something like the ringer was going to happen at least. Um, and I was told that we want you to come. Right. But still, again, that's like, I trust everyone, but a lot of shit can happen and things can change and a job can disappear. Right. So I, I had that and I, I enjoyed working with everyone when we were working together and it wasn't chaos. Right. And really had a lot of respect for a lot of the people I worked with and enjoyed the creative relationships. So I did have that in the back of my head where I was like, okay, I think this other thing is going to happen. And I think there will be a job for me here. And I at least have like two months of pay and got a nice bonus. Um, and it was a really, like the end was really stressful. And so I think the at least the little bit after I was just like happy to be able to chill for like a couple of days. Like I wasn't that worried about the future. But then as time goes on, you kind of start to worry because like, so I didn't get hired by the ringer until a month and a half before it started, like the website started, but decently far into after like the podcast had started and it was a newsletter to begin with. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty there, right? Because it's like, yeah, I think I want to do this job, but like, I don't have to do this one, right? So I think I I got pretty deep into interviewing for like a, essentially running the website at GQ, like very deep into that process. And then had a handful of other things that were making some progress too. But I wasn't in it as into any of those ideas as just going back and giving it another shot with all the people that I worked with. And then ultimately, you know, they gave me a job offer and then I was able to like calm down a little bit. <laughs> so you're there at, if not the absolute beginning of the ringer, you're there pretty close to the start editing you had like a soccer column. You were hosting a soccer podcast. Yeah. Uh, again, feels to me like not far from what like the platonic ideal of uh, of a job would have been. So why why'd you leave? I don't actually know this story. Like why why'd you leave? And and you left to start your own thing. And I'm just so curious as to why. Yeah. So I worked there for two years, two and a half years, which is compared to all the other jobs, the longest I'd worked anywhere. So I, 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 it was a little more than just tapping in, right? And I think in a lot of ways, it was the ideal job because honestly, the best, the most fun I've had working was April to June 2016, where we were just like, we'd sit around, we'd publish the newsletter, we'd like come up with people to hire, we'd like mock out a day and like anything was possible, right? Like we're about to make this website we have like all these resources and all these talented people. And like, we got to just like brainstorm the shit out of whatever we wanted. And that was so fun because there's like almost no pressure in some ways, especially for someone like me, right? Where I'm like, not, I didn't found the site, getting paid to work with a lot of awesome people and like just come up with ideas nonstop. And that's, that was just awesome. So then we actually have to start making the website. And so the ringer, the difference between the ringer and Grantland was that the ringer we tried to publish the same quality stuff, but we were publishing all the time and tried to like, we tried to do like smart blogging, basically. Like, can we take the considered version of Grantland and apply that to like very quick reactive stuff, which is incredibly difficult to do <laughs> um, while also publishing features and columns, right? Which were the columns and the features are sort of what made Grantland Grantland. And in addition to doing that, I was right, like basically the guy that was writing about soccer doing the soccer podcast. 
and the sh long story short is the grind of being an online editor is, is crazy um, in my opinion like you are editing a ton of stuff every day you have to kind of have be on call whenever there's news in regards to anything you have to like be reading stuff all the time and then you also have to be doing editing and the editing we do at the ringer is pretty intense like a lot of rewriting a lot of notes and you kind of are at the whims of when pieces get filed and stuff so it's just it takes a lot of effort to manage the lifestyle i think and have it not just totally murder your work-life balance i think and i think i got to the point where i mainly just felt burnt out um and i'd just done a full world cup of coverage where we did a daily world cup pod and i was writing a ton about the world cup and like it seemed like people were into the way I was writing about soccer because it is a little bit different than most people write about it. So that gave me some, a little bit of like, in the back of my mind, people seem to be into this. And like, I do enjoy doing this. And like, to completely negate my original thought of why I should become an editor, I was like, if I'm a writer, I can like control my shit. And that seemed really appealing to me in a way where I haven't been able to, I, I feel like I've had no, no control for two years. Did you feel like you'd had no control for two years or like 10 years? I mean, just the way that you're talking about that ringer job and editing in that way, it doesn't actually sound that different to me than like the Good Men Project. Yeah. In a way. It's almost worse because I cared way more about all the stuff, <laughs> you know, while like originally <laughs> like it, the Good Men Project in some ways it just became like this is just a I just have to get this copy going right um while the ringer it's like i don't know a ton of people are going to be reading this like i want to do my writers right that's an important distinction but the thing that's kind of like um in my head hearing you talk through this like you know whatever it was eight nine years that does seem striking is like it was this unique time which is i guess still happening but it feels different now where people were sort of trying to do everything mm-hmm Exactly. Like produce a ton of stuff, but also at an incredibly high level. And while the the ringer might have felt like a maximalist version of that, it does seem to me like that was part of what you were doing at all of these places was like a lot of stuff, but also super high quality threshold. And there is just a question hearing you talk about it, about like how sustainable that is. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it really is sustainable, right? Like Pacific Standard doesn't exist anymore. Outside, their online coverage is a lot different. I mean, even The Ringer, I think they've heavily pivoted towards more podcasts, right? Um, so I think in a way, what you're saying also is like, it wasn't that I was just burnt out from like two years <laughs> at The Ringer. It was being burnt out from like nine years of just freaking bobbing up and down to keep my head above water and changing the water every year, basically. And also, you're hosting these podcasts and you're doing this writing and that seems to be resonating with people. And so uh, suddenly 2018, Ryan, is uh, starting to feel a little different than 2010, Ryan. And you're like, maybe I, I, I could be like in front of the camera here. Yeah, not even like necessarily in front of the camera, but just like... I like doing this and people seem to be into it. The control aspect was, is appealing too. You sit down and write the piece, right? You come up with the idea, you write the piece, send it to your editor. 
Um, you obviously have to like react when stuff happens in the world, but like you just got to write in a way that like my editor is waiting for me to write and then waiting for me to come up with ideas and something about not having to deal with that part of it was, was really appealing to me. So I left without a job lined up. The idea of writing a book kind of had cropped up into my head over this time because that is like the opposite of what I was doing every day, right? It's like, you take a step back, you have the time, you just got to like do this thing over and over again. You can like, you don't have to be thrown out takes about anything. You can like go on all these tangents. Like the idea of writing a book appealed to me, which I think is interesting because I think a lot of people like hate writing, like the actual writing part. Like how many of your people you've interviewed like are just like, yeah, writing, I don't like that, but everything else is good. I feel like that's like not an uncommon way that journalists feel. Yeah, it's like 98% of the uh, the people who've come on this show have said something like that. I like writing. Like I like doing the words. So the idea of writing a book was appealing in contrast to this. So I, I got in touch with an agent and he was very into the idea of what eventually became my book. So that gave me a little bit of a kind of push to leave. And then I think there was also a push of just like you get, you reach a point where you're burnt out and you just have to leave. And then I also like randomly connected with Hamish McKenzie, who one of the founders of Substack, he like, he saw my goodbye tweet, I guess, and was like, Hey, you want to do a newsletter? And I was like, actually, a newsletter's kind of like sounded good to me. Like I, you know, it seems like a good proposition. This is in 2018. Like, sure, I'll give it a shot. And then I gave it a shot and did it for a while. How long did your newsletter last? It was called No No Grass in the Clouds. Yeah. I really adopted those SEO methods that I learned right after college with coming up with that name. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty straightforward <laughs> title, man. Um, I started it in November 2018 and shuttered it right before I took the ESPN job. So like October 2021. So like three years. So that's actually the longest <laughs> I've done anything for. Did you make good money doing it? Not enough to just live off of, but like a very good, like do a handful of other freelance pieces to round out the edges and, and be good. It sounds like it's checking a lot of boxes for you. You're in like total control. There was like real enthusiasm, I felt at least as a reader for like the project and the like, I'm in it for this audience-ness yeah. of how you approached it, you know, like trying to meet people where they were give give the uh proverbial people what they want you know and yet that also didn't feel like a totally sustainable thing to you why is that like why why end it if it was mostly working it's a good question and definitely a question that i spent a lot of time thinking about i think the thing i liked loved about it was one the like the responses you get are like incredible as opposed to like the responses you get on Twitter. Um, like if someone is critical of an article you write in a newsletter and they send you an email back, it like by definition has to be a measured response because they're like taking the time to write the email. I have got some terrible emails. I shouldn't say that that's, you know, a filter, but the response I got through that was great. And the nice thing about that was like when you write a newsletter, I mean, yeah, you can write it however you want, right? It's whatever. Um, it's just delivered by email. That's the only structural thing of it. But to me, it, it often felt like a thing where I could kind of like sit down, write, and then I would just get to the end, which is not really how like a normal piece is. You kind of like have to think about it a little more, kind of have to have a make the, you know, lead and the kicker kind of 
go together. While with the newsletter, I just felt like I was like having a conversation and just like throwing out thoughts about whatever it was that I wanted to write about. And that like, it creates way less pressure in terms of just like producing it, I think. And it was nice because I sold the book while I was still doing the newsletter. And so I had the book advance, I had the newsletter and I was, that was good. Like I was making more than enough money. So that was, it was a nut, that was a good combo. But then I got offered the job from ESPN pays really well, but it was also just kind of a moment of like, I guess I've sort of decided on, I'm going to write about soccer. That's my thing. And like, I'm getting a job from offer from ESPN to write about mainly like European soccer in this kind of very unique, like analytical way. There's not many people out there doing it. There's like barely any of these jobs. I have to take this job and like, see what happens. It wasn't exactly the plan, but it felt like something you just had to do. Yeah. Which is sort of everything that I've described over the past hour, basically. It really feels that way. And it makes me wonder, and I think this is pretty connected to the book. Like how comfortable are you with randomness and ambiguity? Like you, you've said five times in this conversation, it wasn't a plan. And yet you did, you like tapped all of these things. You like, you have had all of these different experiences. You've gotten to a lot of the places that you hoped to get to. And the book, it like its ending is quite ambiguous. You know, it's not definitive for or against analytics and soccer. It just makes me wonder. I mean, this is a very, uh, I told you we're going to get back to the existential here. No, for sure. But like, how comfortable are you with that now? And is that different than 2010? As we've been talking, I think I've described a lot of the most stressful moments as the moments where I had uncertainty over what was happening, right? Like when I was waiting for a job offer, right? And that was super stressful to me. Or when I was like, maybe going to get this job and doing this other job full time, that was really stressful, even if like the load of work I was doing wasn't like stressful. So that in some ways suggests that I'm not super good (laughs) with um, living in uncertain moments. Even when you write a book, like people ask me, they're like, how did you do this? Like, I don't understand. Obviously, these are people that aren't uh, long form listeners or professional journalists, but they're like, I don't get it. Like, where are all these thoughts coming from? And it's like, if you think of it that way, you're not going to write a book. If you're just like, damn, there's a hundred thousand words due. And this book is like not really, it's not a narrative about one specific thing. It's a bunch of different things that have to come together. And if you're just constantly thinking about how is this going to come together, how is this going to come together? I, I don't think you can do it. And so I think I've, over my career, what I've done a good job of is just like, you just sit down and do the work and you just keep doing it. And then like, you eventually realize you need to stop doing the work and do something else. And you've built up this body of work that lets you go do other work or like you just keep doing it and things sometimes come together. But I'm also aware that like a lot of this stuff probably in an alternate timeline doesn't come together in the same way for me, you know? So I think I'm pretty comfortable with it from like a philosophical aspect. But then when I'm in moments of like uncertainty where I don't have that much control, I'm still not great at just like sitting in that and being like, this is, this is okay. Is that comfort something that can improve? Does it change with confidence and experience? I think somewhat. When I was at Grantland, when I was first started there, 
I remember whenever I wrote something, I would feel like super stressed. And like, is this going to be like as good as like all the other stuff on the site? Like, especially as I'm an editor, like I have to like do a good job here if we're going to be publishing my stuff on the site. I felt like a lot of pressure. There's enough pressure in like sitting in front of a blank page and having to come up with something and then adding all this other pressure where it's like, this is sitting next to like Zach Lowe and Brian Phillips, like on the site, like I'm writing this stupid thing about Aston Villa's manager's beard. Is this going to fit? <laughs> um, so I, I remember feeling a lot of stress every time I wrote, even though I forced myself to like write a certain amount. Well, now I don't feel like that. Like there's a little uncertainty every week where I wake up and it's like, yeah, I got to write a handful of columns, but like, I just can do it. You know, like I, it's, it's a creative thing, but it's like, for me, it's like the thing that I do and I just have to like sit down and do it. And guess what? Every piece I write isn't going to be the best piece and no piece I write is going to be the worst piece. And like on aggregate, I'm going to do a pretty good job just because that's like me. That's what I've done. You know, I have enough built up to show that. And I guess in some ways that's kind of the lesson of the book as well. It is the lesson of the book. Yeah. That's basically like where the book lands is like you can train yourself to do the work and be in a good position and also the final result not totally in your control <laughs> i think you're exactly right and i've i've never thought of that connection i often end these interviews ryan by asking people like what they're going to do next but i feel as though that question does not apply in this particular <laughs> uh particular conversation seems like that's a uh antithetical place to end because I feel like the uh, the takeaway here is like, who knows what's going to happen next? All you can do is put yourself in a position for like uh, something you want to happen to happen. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't know what I'll be doing in 10 years. I have no idea. But like I work for ESPN and I have this good job and I just wrote a book and I'm going to do that and keep doing that and see where it goes. And just hope that in 2026 when people are asking why, you know, LeBron isn't playing goalie for the U.S. men's national team, uh, it doesn't piss you off as much. Maybe that's why I'm able to deal with all the randomness by letting myself get pissed off by stupid shit like that. Ryan, thank you for doing this, man. Thanks for having me, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Thanks to him. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to our friends at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks very much to Ryan O'Hanlon. His book is called Net Gains. Go check it out. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free 
Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.